0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Neo Maxi Zoom Dweeby edition. It's Wednesday, April 11th, 2018. On today's show, TV's Roseanne is back. It's been called both a pan to and a critique of working class whiteness. Which is it? And country singer Casey Musgraves' new album, Golden Hour, is a critical darling. Uh, Although maybe slightly mellower than her spiky past work, we will discuss it all with Slate critic Carl Wilson. Then we discuss a wonderful essay in The New Yorker from actor Molly Ringwald, What About the Breakfast Club? We'll revisit that classic and Ringwald's interesting feelings about it in the age of Me Too. Stephen Metcalf is still out, but I'm joined today by Slate's movie critic Dana Stevens. Hello,
2: hey Julie, welcome back. Thank you. you.
1: Thanks for holding down the fort. Uh, And special guest Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, the host of a very exciting top secret upcoming podcast. Hello, Willa. Hi. Um, Have you been spending all your time in this room? How's your how are your mic skills? Quite
3: a bit. My mic skills are are developing.
1: Ah, our listeners know well that they're already quite capacious. All right, let's dig in. The sitcom Roseanne originally ran on ABC from 1988 to 1997, a portrait of a working-class family from Illinois, the Connors, It starred Roseanne Barr, John Goodman, and Laurie Metcalf, and the show is now back 20 years later for its 10th season. The show has won praise and condemnation for its portrayal of working-class whites and I think also arguably for the politics of Roseanne Barr, uh, and is being received as both a document of the Trump era and something with perhaps something to say about it. We'll figure out what, or maybe we won't, but before we do or don't, let's listen to a clip. Here we hear the Connor family gathered in their kitchen. Daughter Darlene has moved home with her children, and here we hear uh, a multi-generational conflict as darlene and her daughter discuss the daughter's plans
2: who are these people you wouldn't know them i barely know them why are you hanging out with people you don't know because i've only been here a month and i didn't inherit your charming personality a little trust here darlene did she just call you darlene (laughs) yeah i have no problem with it it's very modern
1: It allows the parent and the child to address each other as equals.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Please call me Aunt Jackie is the only title that I have.
1: All right. Well, Willa, you reviewed this revival for Slate and then wrote also about the response to the revival. Tell us a little bit about what you made of this latest reanimation of a show. From twenty to thirty years ago.
3: Okay, I have to confess that I have so much to say about Roseanne. I have found it hard to be coherent because I just <laughs> keep like jumping ahead to like my major point, which is not actually related to your question or like the premise of Roseanne. So I'm gonna try to slow my brain down because I have a lot I think that's really interesting. Um I think the show is super fascinating. I <laughs> I think I wanna stay at state at the beginning that Roseanne Barr, whose politics are Insane and who is on Twitter as like a as, a as a total trumpist, but also like an ardent and Zionist and also conspiracy theorist, and and is really seems like vaguely not vaguely, it seems like reprehensible and and wacky on Twitter. Um, and this is after she like ran for the Green Party in an earlier election. Um, she is obviously a huge part of the show. Her name is on the show, but she is no longer the showrunner of the show. She never was. She's not even really steering the ship. Sarah Gilbert, the actress who plays Darlene, is sort of was responsible for corralling the cast to come back. Um, and there's other showrunners that aren't her. So I think that there's been a kind of, um, obviously the show is representing her in a way that she's happy with to be on the show, but the show is not just like a, a mouthpiece simply for Roseanne. And I think that that's a distinction that's worth thinking about or, or that I think that I've been thinking about when I've been thinking about the show. So I think the show is basically um, insanely timely, almost in a way that's like nauseating. ABC so camely was like, what show can we bring back right now to solve this problem that we don't have any white working class people on our network, if that's a problem? And they were like, we have Roseanne. And then they were like, let's get it back on the air. And it, it arrived. And then it did exactly what they wanted it to do, which is it got insane ratings it exceeded everyone's expectations for them and instantly there was a kind of like land grab for it as there is with everything um which i don't mean to say that it it was politicized it's already a political show but there was suddenly like a basically trump was like this is mine i'm taking credit for us do you see how well that he actually told a gathering of union workers did you see how well that show did it's all about us and what happens in our world right now is that like basically then everyone has to take a totally hardline political position on it. Like, is it good for Trump voters? Is it bad for everybody else? Is it anathema to liberals? Like, should we not be watching it at all? Is it totally just saying exactly what Trump voters think and it's a celebration of them? And I think that the show is actually a much more um, compromised thing, which is it's actually, um, it's a it's probably a show made by people who are relatively liberal that stars an actual real Virulent Trump voter, and it's a kind of brokered compromise between those people, which doesn't which I don't think means that anyone has changed their mind. but they're sort of trying to all exist in the same space in the show. And I think that that is actually a really contentious question of whether we should be sharing space in that way and whether giving um, even giving a mouthpiece to some a character like Roseanne at this moment in time, even if she's surrounded by their characters who sort of don't agree with her, is is okay. That was a lot of things. (laughs) Sorry.
1: (laughs) No, I think you've put your finger on what's been really interesting about the discussion on this show, which is, I mean, I spent a a night (laughs) in the emergency room during my vacation. Everything's fine. Everybody's fine. But as a result, I watched like four hours of Fox News that I wasn't expecting to in the waiting room. And, like, it really was... Every hour, one new host got up and brought on two guests, and they all talked about what it meant that Roseanne had done so well in the ratings. Like, that was 10 minutes of each hour of the show for four hours in a row. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess that's what this is. And the, the sense of people claiming it as a victory for this or that. The Fox News consensus was that um, when we talk about representation in media, we're not talking enough about whether white working class people are represented in media and isn't it great that they finally are. And I mean, it really was like exactly the conversation you hear when Black Panther does well at the box office. And people are like, well, see, people think you can't represent blah. But once you represent blah, blah comes out to watch blah. And it's a triumph. And these stupid executives, they don't know. Like it was it was word for word what people were saying after Black Panther. It was amazing. Um, and so it was interesting to go in and watch the show with that lens in mind. And then I found that I really liked it. And, and that it, I never watched the original. I, we like, didn't watch Roseanne in my house growing up, but I found the character of Darlene in particular to be incredibly um, fascinating and heartbreaking to watch. And this question of what the family was all about to be really moving, strangely, um, even though the whole thing had this kind of retro rhythm to it of like punchline-y jokes that don't feel like actual conversation.
2: Yeah, it's a couch comedy. I mean, it's it, it's amazing how much it feels like the old Roseanne in terms of its tone and its look, given that that style of multi-camera sitcoms filmed in front of live audiences is, is so old-fashioned, it it snaps right back into that vibe. It is actually funny, but I think I feel about it almost exactly as the writer Roxane Gay does and whatever she was for The Times, I think, mm-hmm. that she wrote about it. Which, Except that I don't think I loved the old show the way that she says that she did. It was just sort of there. Roseanne was just sort of one of the shows that was on and on one of the few networks that, you know, I think I even had on my television at that point. So I saw it a few times or many times and sort of enjoyed its comfortable vibe but never had a strong attachment to it. That said, this show is just as funny and smart as the old Roseanne and engages with some of the same questions of class in a way that... Roseanne Barr is right to say, you know, very few TV shows do, but I'm not going to keep watching it because I'm repulsed by the actual Roseanne Barr and her behavior on Twitter and the fact that she's just a person who's spreading dangerous lies and has this huge platform to spread them on. So far, the show is not spreading those lies, but it's sort of a lie that the show is not doing so in a way, right? I mean, as something that we read about this show pointed out, as something that we read about this show pointed out, if... The new Roseanne was really true to what politics are like right now and what it is to be a Trump supporter and what it's like for Roseanne Barr herself to be a Trump supporter. Roseanne Conner, the character, would be sitting behind a computer tweeting out, you know, cruel jokes about David Hogg and the Parkland shooting. I mean, it would be so much uglier than what's presented on screen as this kind of
3: wholesome ideological struggle between Roseanne and her sister Jackie. I guess I am really interested in the way that Underneath this argument about what the show means and whether or not um, one should watch it is like if we can't practice not being furious at each other in the context of a sitcom, like where are we going <laughs> like it just I, I didn't I wrote about I wrote about sort of what how I think that's really like the question under Roseanne, but I didn't like push it further, which is just to say. If we don't think that someone and it's not Roseanne Barr, like this fictional character who believes whatever she believes, uh, you know, is a Trump voter. And um, I think the show goes out of its way to sort of soften the edges of that to sort of to perhaps pretend that it's possible to be a Trump voter and not be racist and not be um, homophobic. But, you know, the show supposes those things.
1: Well, I think the question is whether the show is actually causing a nation of TV watchers to grapple with a Trump voter. Or whether in allowing the kind of virulent and unhinged Trump voter Roseanne Barr is to masquerade as the sort of feminist, sympathetic, uh, comfortable with her gender-fluid grandson, uh, fundamentally lovable Roseanne Connor that she's playing on the show, the sitcom is perpetrating a lie. It's like making us feel like we're having some moment of political catharsis or the Thanksgiving where everybody doesn't kill each other. But in fact, there is a fundamental falsity to that Thanksgiving because the person playing that character is someone so different that the show refuses to grapple with. Like the show writes the true nastiness of some faction of Trump voters out of itself in a way that makes it all feel false. I mean, is that what's Making you itchy about it or or
2: makes it seem as if I mean, even let's suppose that, you know, Roseanne Connor, the character on the show, despite being a a, a voter for Trump, is in fact supportive of her gender fluid grandson, that she is fine with the fact that one of her grandchildren is biracial. Although I would point out, which Roxanne Gay also says, that that character is a total prop on the show. I do
3: just want to say that that is true so far. But her father on the show, the character DJ, like has had no storyline either. And I assume that there's going to be an episode that's about their family, like they've sort of been breaking It up like not everybody gets an episode, and it may not happen. But I sort of think that that's going to be one of the. I'm sure it will happen. Yeah, I've only seen three episodes. I mean, no, everyone's only seen three episodes. I'm just saying, I think that that critique may be totally warranted, but may also be premature. So
2: even if we allow that this character Roseanne Connor has these warm feelings toward her family, if the show really wants to be political and talk about what's at stake in being a Trump supporter or a Trump opponent, then. It has to grapple with the fact that her vote is actively harming other people in that position. But the, I think
3: this is the thing where it's like we want it, we want Roseanne to be a Trump voter the way we see Trump voters, and I don't know that that's efficacious. Like it, whether or not it's right, it, I don't know if it's effective. So it's like this isn't a show. I mean, what is effective as comedy? Effective as politics? Effective as politics? Its ratings are huge. I don't think everyone who watched it is a Trump voter, but insofar as. White working class people were certainly some portion of this large audience that wanted to show up for the show. You can't like give them liberals' ideas of what a Trump voter should be, and I think the authenticity of Barr is clear. Like, I think that I don't even just mean her wacko Twitter persona. I just mean there's a way that I wrote about this. Like her her vote is not flexible. Like she believes what she believes, and the show is not. um It doesn't soften that. Like her righteousness. She thinks she's right, and I think that that is like that is. Is can being communicated to people who are watching, it, where they're seeing something on TV, where they're like, "This isn't someone who's pretending to vote for Trump's idea of what a Trump voter is. This is actually a Trump voter," and I think that that that's like important to sort of why the show is working, and I think that's actually also important to why it can communicate with them in any way. So it's like if we think that shows can change people's minds about stuff, is the fact that Rose is the fact that Roseanne has this sort of other liberal beats to it like that she is accepting of her gender fluid grandson i mean is that does that work because she's not like totally compromised fictional creation of of a liberal imagination, I think it might work that way. I think it only works that way if it's work it working that way at all.
2: I would completely agree with everything you just said. If the real Roseanne Barr were not spreading bizarre, malicious lies about Trump, I don't know, busting up child prostitution rings or something like that. I mean, maybe I'm supposed to nobly separate the art from the artist or something. But like, this is a person with an ABC sitcom with giant ratings, right? She has a enormous megaphone and she's just doing the most disgusting things with it. I just, I feel, I would feel wrong to continue watching the show, even though I think it's at what it's trying to do, and even, I think, as you say, what it's trying to do is somewhat admirable. I have no problem with, you know, Roseanne Barr voting for Trump, supporting him, her character supporting him, the show being about her whole family fighting about her support for him. But when that becomes this kind of glossed over, like, pretty version of what's really happening and what Trump supporters, a lot of them, not all, are really doing, then it starts to feel ugly and wrong to me to watch it.
1: I mean, it does come down to the fundamental conflict that rends various Thanksgiving dinner tables, which, you know, I think we laid out these arguments in the pages of Slate after the election. You know, Jamal Bowie wrote this piece for us that was like, if you voted for Trump, you are a racist, even if you don't feel like you're a practicing racist in your own life and in the way you treat the people you know, you have fundamentally ushered in a set of political power that will be extremely harmful to people of color, and like, the show and that is have- a racist act. Like it, it's that it's sort of the absolutism of the political act as the moral judgment of the person who cast the vote, which I think is is in my view probably like correct and does not change the fact that the way that people act to their own specific family and grandsons and the people in their lives may be different than that. Like it, it's it's an it, a really fascinating fault line. Um,
3: But it's also like that's such I've been thinking about that piece. Exactly. But the thing is that politicians and networks, they don't care about that network that they don't care about that argument because they don't they want everybody. Right. Like they have to ignore that argument. They want voters and they want viewers and they don't care basically about their politics in that passion. and actually as sort of totally uh, morally vacuous and empty as that is like maybe we need some people right now who are going to ignore the actual nuance of this argument and not just even the nuance, like the stark racism of it and be like, we have to figure out a way to like, I'll, to I'll get be looking at the same and thing. to just get together a little bit because the way the other option for like the other option for confronting the truth of this is like what is down that road? Like violence is down that road, like intractable is down that road. And that may be where we're going. It certainly feels that way where we're going like a lot of the time. But that, you know, this is the this is the other way. And it may require like a lot of blindness about um, the actual nature of the conflict. But that's not that might that might just be, you know, more utilitarian and better in like the long run.
1: All right. Roseanne as the resurrection of the single hearth around which all of America gathers for better or for worse.
2: Uh, Crocheted okay. Afghans for everyone.
1: Yes. The show is really fascinating, uh, even if you decide, as Dana and Roxanne Gay have, to never put another. Scent of their attention minutes <laughs> We're towards hang ABC out in this show. Me and Roxy will be hanging out. <laughs> I would recommend that you go watch a couple episodes before you draw that conclusion. Not because I, I think it's unreasonable to draw that conclusion, but it's a really, really fascinating cultural artifact. All right. Well, come to slash culturefest to tell us what you thought of the old Roseanne, what you think of the new Roseanne, what you think of the real Roseanne, and the host of gr- other great actors and actresses on the show. All right. Well, before we get Carl Wilson on here to talk about Casey Musgraves, we have a little bit of business for you guys. Um, First, I wanted to remind you all of the existence of one of the most wonderful podcasts in the whole Slate Podcast Network, which is Hit Parade by our dear friend and frequent contributor, Chris Melanfee. While I was away, I listened to the latest episode about Madonna's Ray of Light. And like, I cannot think of an album that I'm less interested in as a baseline than Madonna's Ray of Light. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah, sure, Madonna, and she's that electronica thing. Kabbalah time, yeah, whatever. Those right? sort of like not the not the Immaculate Collection Madonna classics that I know note for note. Um, what a great episode. So interesting on the history of music, the history of electronica. It made me want to, like, play that album nonstop, uh, think about Madonna's career arc and, and talents for reinvention. Like, just... If you have not been listening to Hit Parade, or if you have but just haven't listened to this latest episode, I commend you go now, subscribe to the Hit Parade feed, listen to the Ray of Light episode, listen to the Ray of Light album. Chris is a miraculous critic and thinker about the history of music, and it's, it's professor of pop. So fun to be in his audio presence. So check that out. Um second in Slate Plus today, Willa, Dana, and I will be answering a listener question about whether or not you feel compelled to finish the books that you start stay tuned for our answer to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts sign up for slate plus slate plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the journalism we do for just 35 dollars for your first year you can help cover the cost of producing the culture gab fest and your other favorite slate shows and of course in return you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support what we do, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's talk to Carl. Casey Musgraves is a country singer and songwriter, uh, perhaps best known for her song, Follow Your Arrow, a classic-sounding country anthem that tartly encourages you to uh, kiss whomever you want and maybe smoke some weed, too. Her third major-label studio album, Golden Hour, was recently released and has been garnering critical praise as being an achievement even beyond her much-lauded earlier work. We're joined by Slate's Carl Wilson to talk about the new album and the direction that Musgraves is taking. But first, let's listen to a clip from the new album. This is Oh, What a World. Carl.
0: Hi, everybody.
1: Welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you on.
0: It's so great to be here.
1: Uh, Tell us what you think of Musgraves. What did you think of her before and what do you think of her now?
0: Well, I was a pretty early advocate of Musgraves um, back from around 2013 when her first major label album, um, Same Trailer, Different Park, came out. Um, And particularly the lead single from that, um, Follow Your Arrow, kind of became the more crossover Song, But the first single, Merry Go Round, was this kind of wonderful um, portrait of the frustrations and dead ends of small town life and of working class life in America in ways that don't often show up in songs, um, particularly outside of country, but also even in this particular sort of gimlet-eyed way in country and this kind of sense of wordplay and just a sort of dense intelligence to what she was doing, along with, you know, at the time she was just um, 24. And so along with this kind of very carefree feeling um, spirit of a young woman speaking her mind. And so I I was really hooked early on. And then um, a couple of years ago in 2015, um, her second album, Pageant Material, came out. And the problem with that was that it was a little bit more of the same. And the kind of messages of tolerance and kicking back against the, the prudes and the, and the small town morality all started to feel like it was repeating itself. What The lead single from that was the song called uh, Biscuits, which took a bunch of really cornpone kind of cliches and flipped them on their heads to once again make the point of, like, let everybody do their own thing. And I started to wonder how much further this could be sustained. And the interesting thing about this album is that it seems like she understood that she was maybe painting herself into a corner as well and has and has taken a a left turn or maybe a right turn into a more sort of bright pop kind of sound and and experimenting a little bit with what her voice can do.
1: I both recognize that what you're saying is true and also found the experience of listening to this album kind of boring. Like <laughs> I want my country music to be the like tart, lyrically dense, funnier than pop songs typically are kind. And she was so great at that. And I I hear you in your description that um, perhaps there was a little bit of repetition or familiarity in it. And I can also perhaps recognize that this album is an expansive step forward for an artist who will be with us for a long time. But I like listened to this album four times yesterday when I was getting back from vacation and going through all my email. And I was just like, I don't care about any of these songs. There's like one song on here that I'm going to add to my mega mix.
3: So wan. What? So wan. Like the whole thing. It sort of just like washes over you. Yeah. One feeling.
1: It's hard to hold on to. It's just this like wash of emotion. And
3: that actually to me isn't about country. Even as she's moving into pop, it seems like she's kind of also holding back. Like she doesn't want to make like she's not doing the full Taylor Swift like these are pop songs. She's sort of finding some middle ground where they definitely have like all the, you know, the ukulele noises. Like they have their country bona fides. They're just like mellower. You know what I mean? It's
2: very mellow. It's very mellow. What
1: did you
3: think? I want to stand
2: up for this record. I mean, I'm not going to say that I was, for one thing, already listening to it before we decided to do it on the show, just because I heard people talking about it and I like follow your arrow and was interested to hear what Casey Musgraves was doing. I do think that it is too, um, when you say that no song stands out, stands out Julie, I think that would maybe be my critique of it, is that all the songs have the same mood, which I think, Carl, in your review, you, you compare to Anne Murray and maybe other sort of pop country, you know, artists of, of a few decades ago like that. And it does have a little bit of that wash of sweetness feeling. But I don't know. I've had worse experiences than being washed in the sweetness <laughs> of Casey Musgrave's voice and her, her writing sensibility.
0: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Along with Anne-Marie, I also sort of referred back to late 70s Dolly Parton in her sort of nine to five period, although, of course, you could respond that there's nothing quite as fiery as that here. But still that country disco feel of that period and even Olivia Newton-John sort of pre-Grease, the, the country crossover phenomenon that she was. And one of the things that's refreshing to me about it is that's just not a sound that we've heard in a long time, like the closest thing. Um, perhaps is sort of 90s Cheryl Crow at her more country um, ends of the spectrum. And in fact, this album was recorded on Cheryl Crow's ranch um, in her studio above her horse stables. Um, and so there's a refreshingness just to the thinking about what the songs can be. I, I would disagree that there aren't songs that stand out, but I agree that there's a feeling of a watch. One of the things... To know about this album, I think, is that um, it's her honeymoon album, basically. Um, She got married to Rustin Kelly, a fellow country songwriter, um, in October. And to hear her talk about it, you get the sense that it's not only the excitement of, of newlyweds, but actually possibly, and this is part of the shift in sensibility, that perhaps, you know, she dated her guitarist in her band for many years um, during those first few years of fame. And you kind of get the feeling that this relationship is the first good (laughs) relationship in her life. And it's kind of taken some of the edge off of that um, sarcastic tone that she had. And I feel somewhat the same way, that there is a little bit too much of Sunshine and Flowers on this album. But I have faith that that Barbed sensibility will come back and that it'll reach a balance. And I do enjoy this album just sonically. She refers to it as galactic country. She talked about having sounds from um, Imogene Heap and um, Daft Punk in her minds and trying to think of whether there were ways that she could get that kind of groove feel um, and still do it within the bounds of country. And I think that it's fairly successful on that level. She's also switched collaborators. Um, on this album, which I think is really telling. A lot of her work before was written with um, this sort of Nashville songwriting whiz, Shane McAnally, who's really the standard barrier of a kind of Nashville progressivism and that kind of clever um, country songwriting style. And here she's working with a couple of producers who are kind of multi-instrumentalists, more interested in sound than words and um, with an interesting kind of power pop and dream pop and all of that's infusing itself. So yeah, if I felt like this was the future of Casey Musgraves writ large and permanently, I think I would be less inclined to bask in it, but I, but I don't feel threatened. I think that, that, you know, she has, she's going to have a good long run as a musician. And I think this is just one of the steps along the way.
1: Bask is a really good verb. It's a very baskable record. Like it's kind of warm and pleasant. And if you can bring yourself up out of the basking enough to pay attention, you'll find glimmers of interest and sharp language. But it's really chill, like slightly boringly chill.
3: Although I would say it's possible that there's like a hit single on it. I don't know what's actually going to happen to High Horse, but like she's trying to have a hit single.
1: Okay, well yeah. especially with the reference to Dolly Parton and and the disco revival, why don't we play the open art of high horse and hear this this potential decreed by some implausibly to me as Song of Summer?
3: That's a bop, Julia. You're totally wrong. That's such a bop.
1: <laughs> I don't know, man. There's something so anodyne about that.
3: But I like, I think that in that instance, I'm Carl's obviously much more expert and he's going to tell me what I should actually think of the song. But I think that's a scene, like, a, that's a song where, like, the melanist actually works nicely. Like, she's pulling back from it a little bit. So...
0: It's not trying to do too much work. Right.
1: The slams as delivered in this very pleasant way kind of go down harder. Carl. Yeah, there's some
0: there's some of her old voice in this song, and actually it's co written with a couple of her old collaborators. And so there is that kind of diss edge to it. Um while doing this obviously very lush kind of disco um very Bee Gees inspired track along with it. And so that I really love that track. I think that I think there's kind of almost never been Anything like it in country, and 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 it it will definitely be one of the survivors out of this batch to me.
3: It is also so interesting with that song, where like when you're trying to navigate this crossover thing and be a country star, like the signposting you have to do about how you're like not really just trying to do pop, like that song's a pop song, but then it has all these country lyrics. It has like it just has these like she's saying I'm I'm doing this, like I'm making a crossover song, but I'm not really doing it like. Full on. I think that's just a weird the anthropology of like how you communicate to your different groups. If you're a country
0: singer, it seems so strange to me.
1: Right. I'm. A, this is a pop song, but we're still talking about horses. Yeah. I mean,
0: I mean, to, for the most part on this album, I find Musgraves like worrying about that less than ever. But obviously, it's always going to be there on a Nashville record. The big trap that Musgraves has often been caught in is that she's like too country for country radio. And like two country, wait, for you mean two pop as well? No, I actually mean two country. Like she's too old-fashioned country, and she she doesn't like fit in well amidst the sort of like big drums sound and big drums and big guitar solo sound of like most of the sort of bro country as it's often called of this decade. And so, like that, all of she's part. She has one foot in that traditionalist camp that a lot of the sharpest country songwriters of today are in, and that obviously sort of shades over into the Americana world. And so here she's kind of doing something, going like a pox on everybody's houses, and I'm going to do this, Um, trying, I think, to like slip a little out of that, like, how country is it, Trap, that she's always caught in?
2: Carl, can I ask you about one song that it does seem to me like an outlier, at least lyrically and in terms of the the themes? You're right that most of these divide up really cleanly into the diss tracks of the bad ex-boyfriends, right, which would be High Horse and Space Cowboy, the one Willa likes. That mm-hmm. is a good song, I think. And then the really romantic songs that are about, you know, struggling for the words to express your happiness in your new relationship, which I'm sorry, are just sweet. It's a really romantic album. But then there's this one minute and 18 second long song about motherhood. that is just Nothing like anything else on the album. And the, my favorite thing about it was that it was so short and mysterious. Can you tell the story of that song if you know it?
0: Yeah, maybe let's hear a little bit of it before I reveal the secret behind that song.
3: Bursting with empathy, I'm feeling everything, the weight of the world
0: on my shoulders. Tears don't freak you out They're just kind
2: of coming
0: out it's So this, um, possibly in other places on the album too, but very specifically, um, the muse of this song is LSD. Um, Musgraves has talked about um, adopting the the popular millennial hobby of microdosing um, in recent years. I kind of imagine in, in uh, commune with her new hubby and um yeah so this song was written in 10 minutes on acid um missing her mother and crying and seeing the tears that she was crying as sort of containing the whole cosmos as well as um the essence of music i think is kind of hinted in the song and um yeah so there's and that kind of, there is a little like stream of like Low-level psychedelia that kind of runs through that whole sort of glowing feel of the album. I think even beyond this song, and that that song's the definitely the like freak hidden track. That you know, if you went back to a '90s CD or something like that,
1: that is one of the super arresting moments on the record. I agree; that's the one that like one of the moments that like pulls you out of feeling like it's a boring watch. And I will say the other song for me that will put me in the camp of admiringly bored rather than dismissively bored, like admiringly bored and planning to continue to follow Casey Musgrave's work is Velvet Elvis, which to me is like so weird and distinctive and funny and yet so captures the feeling of having just a secret new love or a not so secret new love, just the like private
2: excellence of that i agree that's not the most unusual or arresting song on the album it's more in line with others but it's it's the catchiest and the best i think
0: yeah and that's th- one of the things i love about it particularly is that like if there had been a song in a previous casey musgraves album called velvet elvis like that would have been a a diss track right it would have been about some phony cowboy uh, the way that space cowboy is but here it's like her embracing kitsch in that way—that's always been part of her sensibility—and using it as a figure for the sort of lumpy, beautiful, shiny man who's like hanging around the house that you just love to see, like hanging on the wall. <laughs> I really love that.
1: All right, we'll go out on the the crushable velvet Elvis. But uh, before we do, Carl, thank you so much for for coming on the show and uh, explaining Casey to us.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Julia. I hope that you're. Uh, schmaltzmeter relaxes its um, vigilance in time <laughs> and be able to
1: <laughs> we'll see we'll see i'll let you know when it does This week, the actor Molly Ringwald wrote an article for The New Yorker called What About the Breakfast Club? In it, she talks about showing The Breakfast Club, the beloved teenage John Hughes drama about five kids stuck in detention for a day uh, to her daughter and reckoning with essentially the sexual harassment that her character Claire undergoes at the hands of John Bender, the uh, renegade delinquent uh, character gathered in the library uh, and writes, it's hard for me to understand how John was able to write with so much sensitivity and also have such a glaring blind spot. I'm so excited to get to talk about this essay and this film with you guys. It's been ages since I had seen The Breakfast Club, but it was, you know, one of the foundational texts of my teen years. I can't tell you how many times I probably watched it. Uh, It's when I rewatched it last night, I was like, I know every line in this movie because most of them were things that I said amongst my friends Like beat for beat for years. Um, And I hadn't really thought about its sexual politics particularly until I read the Molly Ringwald essay. And I actually found that my initial response to the essay was like, Molly, that's the point of the movie. I think, I thought. So we decided to go back, watch The Breakfast Club and discuss. Uh, Dana, our film critic, we'll start with you. What did you think of The Breakfast Club and what do you think of The Breakfast Club?
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's striking me. It's very funny that we both had it as kind of a formative teen. I guess for me it was more like late teens, early 20s kind of movie. But yeah, even though we have a age gap between us, we both had the kind of go-around quoting The Breakfast Club thing. In my case, I think it was always an ironic quoting. Like I was think, imagining that it came out when I was in high school. Then I looked at the release date and it came out when I had just started college, my first year in college. So, I, But I saw, watched it constantly. So, and so I presume that... It was just in constant rotation when I would go home. And remember in the late 80s how if there was a movie on cable, it was always on cable? It was on like
3: TNT and TBS. All right. The time. You
2: basically knew almost whenever you turned on the television in the late '80s, you could get into some part of the Breakfast Club. It, it was just the twister in. of the late '80s. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that that much of a masterpiece, but <laughs> so yeah, I would watch it with my brother and sister. We could all quote it, and we and we always watched it while making fun of it. So it wasn't really the case that rewatching it now was sort of tearing down, you know, some some treasured idol of my childhood. We had always teased it from the moment that 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 Bowie quote at the beginning shatters it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> the entire screen, shatters like black glass and then we're at Shermer High School and all the way to the frozen Judd Nelson fist freeze frame at the end. (laughs) It's like the greatest final shot of a movie ever. It's so ridiculous. (laughs) So yeah, while aware of its Kind of artificiality and the uh, the absurdity of the setup. We we watched it and loved it many times. So and before this Molly Ringwald essay, which I it, I thought was astoundingly good. Molly Ringwald is such a good writer. Now I just want her to, to write on culture all the time. But just before that came out, I had revisited The Breakfast Club because the Criterion Collection, the you know issuers of classic DVDs, decided to put out The Breakfast Club, and they had initially asked me to write the liner notes essay, which was a kind of thrilling offer. And uh, but before I said yes, I wanted to revisit The Breakfast Club. Because, you know, when they, I'm sure that they don't want essays. They don't want puff pieces, but they want someone who truly loves the movie and co- can really commit to calling it a classic because they want to sell their DVDs. So I rewatched the movie, and I wound up turning down the job offer. Not because I don't still love The Breakfast Club. I do. But I, I saw so many of these problematic things that I sort of felt that I wouldn't be able to wholeheartedly throw myself into an essay about why this is a classic that everyone should watch. It was sort of more like... It'll always be precious to me and to my brother and sister, but I can't write a whole 2000 word essay about ironically quoting it in 1985. Um, So I didn't write on it. But going back and revisiting it really made me rethink not so much the Breakfast Club itself, but just like all the internalized sort of sexism and classism and things that I must have just carried inside me to such a degree that they didn't bother me at all at the time. But I had always wanted to write Criterion liner notes. So I said, please ask me again. And I ended up writing on Election, the Alexander Payne movie, which is problematic in its own way, but which I love and adore enough to write a very enthusiastic essay about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm so curious what you th- what your relationship was to it growing up and and upon rewatching it, Willa.
3: Sure. I also watched The Breakfast Club all the time, like forever. I, it's like I feel like I don't even remember when I first saw it. I just was watching it always. And I and because it was on cable, I uh, when I was watching it, rewatching it just last night, I was like, oh, I probably haven't seen like the non TV edit ever, maybe. (laughs) And I'm used to seeing like clips of it. Like, I'm not sure I've seen the whole thing play. Like I probably would like tune in like 45 minutes into it and just watch that bit. Um, You know, I really loved the movie and I loved it exactly in the way you're supposed to love it as a teen where like I found it like moving, like the end would make me cry kind of. And that was that was sort of the most interesting thing for just personally about watching it last night where I was like, this isn't going to make me cry there's no possible chance. Like <laughs> this last speech is so short. Like it's very it's very elegant and it's that the conceit like that idea that we're all the jock and the criminal. I mean, it's so like that's I probably have thought and talked about that billions of times in my life. It's like a very apt description of so many things. But um I did not find it like moving in the way that I did. And of course, I mean, because I was thinking about it sort of in light of the Molly Ringwald piece, you know, there is a lot of like uh really messed up stuff about the romances that are on the one hand totally implausible like were implausible probably even then like those people aren't going to stay together more than one day they just talked about how they're not even going to be friends the next day like I'm glad they all made out in front of their parents but like it's <laughs> over you know but um but there is but obviously when I was watching as a kid I sort of probably like was actually genuinely like shipping some of those relationships because they told me to and that's how it works and I, and I think that they are um there's stuff there that's problematic, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. I mean, I mean, to tell you
2: the truth, when I turned Criterion down, the main thing that bothered me was not the judd Nelson Molly Ringwald interaction. It was the Ally
3: Sheedy makeover. It was
2: the Ally Sheedy <laughs> makeover. I mean, that offended me as a as a young woman. You know, it's Ally Sheedy's character is so great when she's a crazy goth with the The best word choice too, and uh, and her style is great. And I mean, obviously, she's got her problems, as all those kids do. But she is herself. And there's this moment when Molly Ringwald's giving her the makeover and says, "You look so much better without the black." shit on your eyes, and then you hear this little mumbled Ally Sheedy voice saying, I like the black shit. But of course, Emilio Estevez likes her without the black shit. And uh, that moment where she comes out with literally but like a me, pink bow in her hair and is suddenly desirable and valued yeah, by the to, jock.
3: To me, it's like the actual... Boner of that scene Is the Emilio of Estevez. Like I think the idea That she And Claire Would have bonded About that And that scene Where she's like oh, Why are you being So nice to me And she's like Because you're letting me Is almost like One of the most like Honest line readings In that whole it's movie It's great dialogue Great and, um, dialogue And it's like They're just playing And it's like That It's that It's rewarded With like This unappealing jock who doesn't know his own minds like Speak total <laughs> who are his with his like with his ardor even though he's very sweet in his way and like i, I it, really it's, it's, it's love that, the amelia West best character <laughs> it's that it's that it has to be it's like it's that everything has to be romantic you could almost imagine if they were like to remake that movie now i mean there's so many things that would be different and it would not feel i think we have a real problem with verisimilitude that the breakfast club does not like it feels real in a way that a, a movie wouldn't now but um It just maybe like wouldn't end up with everyone pairing off.
1: Well, the thing that here is here is my counterpoint to the Molly Ringwald essay. And I agree. The Molly Ringwald essay is just a beautiful, really smart, really interesting piece of writing that um, I think is powerful in part because she acknowledges how powerful the film was, how moving it was. She talks about uh, having spoken to someone who as a grown gay black man described how transformative the breakfast club was for him as a kid. And she's like, why there's like, no, it, the, the movies. You so know, white. Are <laughs> so, straight. so straight. So white. So straight. Like, how, you know, how, how is it that this movie spoke to you? Um, and the, this person she spoke with talked about just the, the honesty about the feeling of, of being an outcast or not fitting in or not understanding where your place is and, and, and realizing that everybody else has that issue too. Um, So I think there is real power to the movie. But I also think the movie is actually incredibly bleak in undercutting the catharsis and romance that you're supposed to find at the end. Like, in fact, in the final 20 minutes of the movie, they all kind of fall back on the same problems and concerns that beset them when they came in, despite having all smoked weed and danced and cried together. Um, (laughs) Smoke up, Johnny. In a way that's like kind of ruthless and that I think the movie knows about. Like, I don't think the movie thinks that Emilio and Ali Sheedy are, like, going to be in love forever. Exactly. Like, this. The, the scene that is most striking on this point, I think, is when Claire manipulates Brian, the nerd, into writing the essay for all of them at the end, right? So they're all there. They're supposed to write an essay about who they are, the kind of... Um, Soaring rhetoric of the of the claiming of of all of them being in the athlete in the basket case is is the essay that the popular girl has conned the dweeb into writing for them so that she can go make out with a guy in the closet <laughs> like because he's so she just like flatters him into doing yeah, it. that
3: moment actually stood out to me so much because. And I hadn't remembered it, but because she's been so like abused, like she's been so yelled at, and then you're like, "Oh, there's your little weird popular girl charm." Like not even weird. Like there it is. You still have it. You just like are having. And and it, it in a way, and even the, and even her look when she goes to see Bender is like a little bit of that, where suddenly she's like, "Oh, you've yelled at me," but like I have something. Yeah. Well, she is. She
1: has the most power in the room. Weirdly, even though she gets the most harassed, like she's more. um, when they're all, f- I mean, it's just a great piece of writing. Like, I have to say, for all that, your love of it was ironic growing up, and there's so much that's ludicrous and self serious about it. I also saw it, I mean, we're about the same age, I think, Will, but to me, it was like a movie from the 80s that I saw five years later on VHS and was like, oh my God, this is so true. <laughs> It's so true. We're all just people. Like, I did not. I was not. There was no ironic, like, cigarette hanging out of my mouth. I was just like, <laughs> finally, a document that represents my life. You know, like, um, the, the.
3: Uh, Talk about Molly Ringwald having the most power in the room.
1: One's, just like, one's emotions in high school are histrionic and overdramatic. And the movie. operates at the level of the teenage brain in an incredible way. I
2: completely agree. It's beautifully written
1: in a beautiful way. And the writing that the, the, I want to actually go read the screenplay, like the opening scene where they all come in and sit down and establish themselves and their hierarchy and their pecking order by where they sit and how they glance at each other and how they try to establish alliances by exchanging glances as the other people come in and do create, like it's beautiful. It's like a beautiful little stage play. Um, And from the very beginning, Claire has all the control in that room. Like Bender comes in and is an asshole and manages to kind of talk himself into getting more detention and is trying to destabilize and unsettle everything. But fundamentally, she is on top and is able to like call him on his bullshit, recognize that he's being a provocateur, basically try to be unprovoked. And the war between them for like who can have the most power, whether the power of social clout and sophistication and the power of Um, social renegadism will prevail is like constant through the film. And basically watching the first two thirds of the movie, I was like, I don't, yes, he's harassing her, but it's not like she accepts it or everyone thinks it's cool or it's fine. Like it's okay for a movie to represent that the sexual dynamics of high school sometimes involve really cruel um, harass. Like it's not bad that the movie represents this, but... I don't think the movie fully reckons with her turn like at a certain point right after he's done the most abrasive thing which is as he's hiding under the table he like notices that he can see her underwear under her skirt and then he basically like presses his face into her crotch in some way and she like clamps her knees on him and kicks him a bunch and he has to stifle his moans while the principal is there for the teacher um and it's immediately after that exchange that he goes off to smoke weed and she is the first of the other four kids to follow him. And you don't quite... um, I think you can either read that as a failure of the movie to reckon with his problematic behavior in an appropriate way that, that meets the standards of 2018. But I read it as a completely plausible rendering of the power dynamics of high school. She has like lost the power in that situation and the way that she regains the power is like her sexual power of being the desired girl. Like that's the power she has in the school. It's the power she has in that group. And so having been ashamed, she's going to reclaim it. She's going to hang out with him, smoke weed, make him fall for her, make him admit, make him be vulnerable, make him not just be the asshole. And she does. And that's where it goes by the end of the film. And to me, that's like, that's how high school works like she's back to herself he's uh he gets to be romantic in a different way. I don't
2: think Bender earns his um his redemption though even with that reading the moment where she goes off, I agree that that is that is her reclaiming the power but then in the encounter group scene as I like to think of it when they're all sitting around in a circle it's it's very near the end of the movie, and it's when you find out what Emilio Estevez did to get into. Detention. What Anthony Michael Hall did, and then they had this conversation about all girls are teases. Remember, and they and Bender is kind of torturing Claire that, in that scene. And then
3: when he successfully tortures her into confessing that she's a virgin, a virgin um, everyone kind of gangs up. There's like a beat where, and then Anthony Michael Hall's character is like, "You're just so conceited." Like where everyone is sort of turned on her. I mean, it, it it may be because she's sort of the alpha, but like it does it does feel like that's certainly like representing the movie's point of view that like she is flawed in this way that perhaps the rest of them are not
1: well I also feel like I mean maybe the future we're heading for is one where the dawn of sex in your life is not scary at all and it's just like a beautiful revelation because we're all so woke and perfect but even in a world where our gender politics are completely sorted out I think the shift from being a child to a sexual adult is a scary one and a vulnerable one and the question of like how you do that and how you become a sexual grown-up like I, I was trying to think about, is it, am I just a product of my generation to assume that there is fear associated with that? Maybe, maybe, we maybe I'm just not dreaming big enough and I'm a, I'm a crabbed, uh, you know, relic of a former time. The
3: thing one was the biggest change for me as a grown up to a kid is I think when I was watching it as a younger person, I recognized like this abashedness about virginity. Like I was like, oh, Totally. You don't want to talk about this. You're embarrassed. But as an adult, I'm like, you guys are 15. Of course you're virgins. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how are you even having like a, like this is. Why is this even for us? You would, you would, you would, someone would believe you if you said you weren't? Like, it just it doesn't, it's, and that's just like such a different thing where it's like you guys, it, which I don't think it, it doesn't mean it's not real, but I was like, you guys are kids. It's, I, I it didn't think that Brian had had sex with anyone, you know? <laughs>
1: All right, well, we have not called shame down upon the head of The Breakfast Club. Uh, It is, I I think it's an enduring film. And if you have thoughts about it or Molly Ringwald's wonderful essay about it, please come discuss them with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. Let's endorse. We'll change things up this week. Willa, you go first.
3: Sure, I want to endorse the new version of Howard End the TV version. It's like a four piece miniseries on stars uh. and it's awesome. Really? It's, so it's adapted by Kenneth Lonergan from the Ian Forster book. Obviously, Whoa. Um, you know, the Emma Thompson version, uh, Merchant Ivory version, um, is like also very lovely and casts sort of a big shadow, but it's really great. It's a really great adaptation. Haley Atwell plays um, the older Schlegel sister, and she's so good. Like I never had loved Haley Atwell, even though she's been in lots of stuff until now, but now I love her. And it's sort of like the the script. The script is like in touch with stuff that's happening now. Like it really is about how the Schlegel sisters are sort of like these Bohemians, and they've been. Um, you know, and these women who are sort of like doing their own thing, and they encounter um, the you know capitalist Wilcoxes, these sort of very practical people, and and that culture clash. But um, it's not too much; like it's still the book, <laughs> like it's still the it's still the story. And she, but she's really, it's just really great. I really like. I I I watched it, and I was like, I can't write about this. I like this too much. <laughs> Like, I don't have anything to say. I just think you should all watch it. So I was like, great. I'll get to tell all of you to watch it, too. It's really... It's exact... I'm really, like, a sucker for Masterpiece Theater. Like, I love a good Masterpiece Theater. And this is, like, that. And it's, like, maybe even a little better. Like, I think it might just actually be really good.
1: Man. All right. I don't think I ever saw The Emma Thompson. And I read that book when I was too young. Like, I read it, like, as a precocious fifth grader at summer (laughs) camp
3: or something. And, like... No, that book is so good. And it's, like, um... It's, like... When you're, like, looking for Jane Austen, but you've done it all? That's probably why I was reading it.
2: <laughs> it's like Jane Austen, but about real estate, right? It's a great, great what? book about got, real estate. I, I got to go back and read also, this again. Also, it may be the best Merchant Ivory movie. It's a really, really good movie, The First Howard's End, with Daniel Day-Lewis. All right, I'm going to go revisit Howard's End in all its forms and then watch the new one. I'm persuaded.
1: Okay, great. Dana?
2: I'm going to endorse a book that I just started that's by someone who's been a guest on this podcast at least once. I think she may have been on a couple times, but at least once while while I was doing the show. Um, it's Sharp by Michelle Dean. Have you guys heard about and or started yes. this book? So Sharp is a book of essays about women in literary history who were known for their sharp tongues, essentially. Um, I just started it, so I, I, have, I can't speak for everyone who's in it, but I know it's going to be about, uh, in part, Dorothy Parker, Hannah Arendt. Um, Nora Ephron is in there. Susan Sontag, McCarthy. Susan Sontag. Didion, Adler. It's such a good lineup. So basically, she just chose you know some of the best female nonfiction writers of the 20th century, and is sort of going through, you know, what they said about women, how they were accepted in their time, sort of what they were as these kind of outlying feminist, uh, sharp-tongued ladies. And uh, so far, it's just really, really funny and lively. And if you've read Michelle Dean's journalism at all, you know, she's a terrific writer. So um, I highly recommend Sharp by Michelle Dean. I believe today is the release date, but uh, I already saw it in, in bookstores over the weekend and picked up a copy.
1: Uh, That book looks great. That is a great lineup of people to consider and read about. And the cover illustration is awesome, too. It's like a bunch of great... I don't don't know who did it, but it's like black and white illustrations of everybody looking very tart. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Tart tarts. Uh, All right. I also have a recommendation for a sharp-tongued lady whose book you might read. I just got back from vacation. I spent my beach chair time reading uh, Tina Brown's Vanity Fair diaries, which I hadn't read when they first came out. And it's like you will know – if you are the sort of person who would find it interesting and if you're not I would not recommend it to you. It's like <laughs> I've
2: heard that it's insanely dishy. It's like but, but dishy about people who
1: don't matter. Like
2: it's like an, <laughs> the essence of vanity fair. It's basically it's a, it's just a
1: great portrait of the 80s and the career of of Tina Brown um and it's really interesting to read about sort of how she navigates kind of the power dynamics in her job and in in the magazine itself, and the broader world of Condé Nast, and the broader world broader world of like magazine making in New York in the nineteen eighties, um, and sort of the beginning when she's getting Vanity Fair started are very interesting on that front. Um, and I'm just getting towards the end of it, where I gather she's about to become the editor of the New Yorker uh, if, if if the if the story turns out the way I believe it will. <laughs> um, and then the middle two hundred pages, which is basically just like a list of dinner parties, is maybe a little slower than the rest of it, but she's a really good writer and like funny and tart social observer. And a little bit like uh if if you are also if if you've read Howard's End and you've read all the Jane Austen, there's a little <laughs> bit of Tart social mores and manners, just like there's a many, many very delicious sentences um about how people interact and what's driving them and, and the power dynamics there. And I came away. I mean, the whole world she's in is kind of ridiculous and, and uh, irreproducible, but uh, it's a good read. If you are interested in magazines at all, uh, it's a good read. So I think it's called The Vanity Fair Diaries. It's by Tina Brown. Willa, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Dana, see you next week. Yes. Is next week
2: our 500th show? Next week is our 500th show. Wow, another thing to get all teary about. I mean, I feel like
1: we can't really do it again since so we just celebrated 10 years, but uh will we'll we'll, uh, we'll put it we'll get a 500 candle and put it in a cupcake and then the cupcake will topple over and icing will smear all over the but felt table How did
2: we get to 500 shows if we've been doing it for 10 years, we don't do I guess well, that there's makes 50 sense. weeks in a
1: year <laughs> times 10. <laughs> oh, yes. But we were bi-weekly for the first few years.
2: Uh, we were bi-weekly for a while, for like a year or two at yeah. the beginning. All right.
1: All right, uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at Slate.com slash CultureFest, and you can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com, or drop us a note on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateCultFest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liktai. For Dana Stevens, and am Paskin, We'll see you soon. Don't you forget about Time.